Austerity, Affluence and Discontent in the United Kingdom, 1951-1979, to Part 1. What were the main problems faced by the people of the UK at the beginning of the 1950s? The Second World War ended in 1945, but its effects on the life of the people of the UK lasted for many years. The term austerity is used to describe government policy in post-war Britain. This refers to the restrictions that the government had to impose on what people could buy and on what the government could spend. Reasons for austerity Britain had run up huge debts while fighting the war. Rationing had to continue and rebuilding made slow progress. There was a limited amount of materials available for rebuilding after the war. To pay off the debts, Britain had to greatly reduce the import of materials from other countries and increase the export of materials and products to other countries. Problems facing the UK at the beginning of the 1950s. Rationing, housing, welfare, the economy. Rationing. Rationing of food, clothing, fuel and other commodities had been vital during the Second World War. This meant that these materials could be diverted for use in fighting the enemy. The UK was also very dependent on foreign imports. Government campaigns had encouraged people to dig for victory and grow their own food to make do and mend and repair worn clothing or broken furniture. Once the war was over, people expected that life would return to normal. In reality, rationing not only continued, but was extended to a wider range of food and materials. Table 1 items that were rationed during and immediately after the war. Petrol. 1939 basic ration. 1942 further limited. 1945 basic ration restored. The year of rationing ended in 1950 and was reduced in 1948. Paper was rationed in 1939 and ended in 1954. Food, 1940 to 1948, when bread was finally taken off rationing. Petrol. 1939 basic ration, 1948 reduced, 1942 further limited, 1950 ended, 1945 basic ration restored. Paper, rationed 1939, year of rationing ended 1954. Food, for example butter, sugar, meat, tea, jam, biscuits, breakfast cereals, cheese, eggs, lard, milk, canned and dried fruit, soap, bread and potatoes. Year items were rationed, 1940, 1946 bread only, 
1947, potatoes only. 1948, the rationing for bread ended. 1950, canned meat and fish. 1952, tea. 1953, eggs, sweets and sugar. 1954, rest of rationed foods. Clothing was rationed in 1941 and ended in 1949. The Conservative Party used people's frustration with the continuation of rationing to help them win the 1951 election. They also used the idea that there would be a potential return to rationing under Labour in their 1955 election campaign. In some ways, rationing was not as bad as it might seem. People with money could avoid restrictions by buying items on the black market. For the poorer people in society, a rationed diet and utility furniture were both far better than what they had before the war. Housing By May 1941 alone, 43,000 people had been killed across the UK in German air raids and 1.3 million had been made homeless. By the end of the war, 60,000 civilians had been killed and 100,000 seriously injured. While London had taken the worst of the German bombing, other cities were also affected. Coventry, Liverpool and Swansea among them. Docks and factories had been destroyed as well as houses. Large areas of towns and cities were covered in ruins and rubble, and these bomb sites blighted urban landscapes. Half a million British homes had been destroyed by German bombing, and a further three million houses were very badly damaged. This was about a third of the total number of houses that had existed before the war. Not only did this mean many people had no permanent home to live in, but it meant that both rent and house prices had become more and more expensive. The wartime Prime Minister, Winston Churchill, had promised 750,000 new houses, but it was the Labour government, elected in 1945, that had the job of building more houses. The Labour Minister for Health, Anoran Bevan, proposed a plan to build 200,000 houses a year, mostly council houses. People crowded into relatives' houses, squatted in ruins and deserted army camps or lived in tents. Some 38 million civilians had been forced to move house as a result of war damage <coughs> excuse me, or work, war work. It was a problem that everyone agreed needed to be solved urgently. The demand for houses was further increased by the 11% rise in marriages because of couples who had postponed their marriages due to the war and relationships begun as many men returned from abroad. The post-war baby boom, one million extra children being born between 1945 and 1950. The demobilisation of four million British servicemen between June 1945 and January 1947. Divorces rising from 12,314 in 1944, already double the 1939 figure, to 60,190 
1947. Many marriages have been put in a strain by the war, as couples have been forced to live apart for years. Men returned, changed by their wartime experiences, and women had become more used to living independent lives. The appalling condition of much of the poorest housing that had survived the bombing of the Second World War, for example, 400,000 houses in Scotland alone, did not have indoor toilets in 1950. The building process started slowly, as most builders and tradesmen were still in the armed forces overseas until 1946. Building materials were rationed, and all new buildings had to be built under licence. This made sure that it was factories, schools and council houses which were being built, rather than dance halls and cinemas. A total of 55,400 houses were built in 1946, 140,000 in 1947, and 284,000 in 1948. Considerable progress was made by the use of 157,000 prefabs. These were comfortable and long-lasting homes, often built by Italian and German prisoners of war. Thirteen different designs were available, and each prefab came with internal plumbing and electricity. To many people who had lived in the cramped, tiny tenements of pre-war Britain, prefabs seemed like palaces. New laws were introduced to help improve the housing situation. In 1946, rent controls were introduced to protect tenants in houses rented from private landlords. The New Town Acts, 1946, took pressure off existing towns and cities by designing the sites of a number of new towns to be used to build larger numbers of new houses for 50,000 people, with businesses and public services within easy walking distance. These included Cumbran in Wales, Stevenage in England and East Kilbride in Scotland. The Town and Country Planning Act 1947 encouraged local councils to draw up further plans for future housing developments and gave them more power to use compulsory purchase for land needed for development. The Housing Act 1949 removed many older restrictions on the types of houses that councils could build in order to encourage developments that would mix people from poorer and better-off backgrounds together. Money was also provided to help landlords bring their properties up to modern standards. Page 5 shows uh, a map showing the towns and cities damaged by major German bombing raids in the Second World War. The Blitz from the 7th of September 1940 to the 21st of May 1941. Bedecker Raids, April to June 1942. Operation Steinbock, January to May 1944. And V Weapons Blitz, June 1944 to March 1945. The post-war new towns of the United Kingdom. Original new towns being Welland Garden City, Stevenage, Harlow, Bracknell, Hemel Hempstead, 
Hatfield, Basildon, Cumbran, Peter Lee, East Kilbride, Glenrothes. Existing towns that were expanded under the New Towns Act were Peterborough, Northampton, Crawley and Warrington. Later new towns were built in Cumbernaud, Livingston, Irvine, Washington, Skelmersdale, Rundcorn, Telford, Redditch, Corby, Milton Keynes. Welfare. During the war, the coalition government decided that they would try to improve life for the British people after the war. Sir William Beveridge produced a report in 1942 that identified five giants that needed to be addressed to improve life for the British people. Want. The lack of the basic things needed to live, like food. Ignorance. The lack of a proper education. Disease, the lack of proper medical care for everyone. Squalor, poor living conditions. Idleness, not having a job. Winston Churchill and the Conservatives were not keen on implementing most of Beveridge's recommendations, except for improving education. They dealt with this in the 1944 Education Act. Labour, on the other hand, campaigned in the election of 1945 with a promise to implement the rest of Beveridge's proposals. After they won the election, the new Labour government then set about passing laws to establish Beveridge's welfare state. The welfare state tackling Beveridge's five giants legislation in place by 1951. Want. 1945, Family Allowances Act, five shillings a week per child for the second child and every child thereafter. 1946, National Insurance Act, provided unemployment, sickness and maternity benefit. Pensions for men over 65 and women over 60. Death grants to cover funeral expenses. In 1948, National Assistance Act, to give financial and residential help to all of those who were not only covered by any of the other schemes, example, had never paid national insurance. Ignorance. 1944 Education Act, raised the school leaving age to 15. Disease. 1946, National Health Service Act, free medical services available to all citizens. Squalor, 1946. New Towns Act gave local authorities the powers to make brand new towns across the UK. Idleness. There were no laws passed directly to address this, but the problem was solved until the 1970s by full employment. Government welfare schemes were nothing new. Old age pensions and unemployment benefits, known as the Dole, had been around before the Second World War. 
The difference with these new reforms was that they were universal, and they would be there from cradle to grave throughout their lives. In 1931, the government in power at that time had introduced a means test so that they could reduce the costs of benefits. This meant that people would only be paid when they could prove they had nothing else of value. This had caused terrible suffering. Labour said they wanted to create a new New Jerusalem, a poetic expression describing the desire to create a better future. The new universal benefits, also referred to as Social Security, meant that people no longer needed to be afraid of being too poor to be able to live their lives. The third Roundtree survey on poverty in 1951 found that full employment and the new benefit services seem to have made great advances in reducing real poverty for low-income families when compared to the previous surveys in 1901 and 1936. The study of poverty in the city of York showed 31.1% of working-class families living in poverty in 1936, but only 2.8% in 1951. The percentage of the whole population of York living in poverty was 18% in 1936, but only 1.5% in 1951. Roundtree concluded that poorer people were not financially better off in 1951, but that their quality of life had been greatly improved by council houses and free NHS treatment. Case Study, the National Health Service, NHS. The National Health Service began on the appointed day, 5th of July 1948. It gave all British citizens access to free medical care from GPs and dentists in their surgeries and free hospital treatment when needed. It had been a struggle to get it started. Firstly, the Conservatives had tried to prevent Norum Bevan's National Health Service Bill from becoming law. When that failed, the British Medical Association, who represented the interests of doctors, threatened that they would not implement it. Many doctors were worried that they would lose a lot of money by losing their private practices and becoming salaried employees of the state. Bevan had to compromise and allow NH doctors to do some private work as well. Bevan is said to have claimed that he stuffed their mouths with gold. The system established in 1948 lasted unchanged until 1989. There was an enormous early demand for free medical care. On the 5th of July 1948, the appointed day, doctors' surgeries were overrun. The government had expected 50 million prescriptions to have been given out by 1951 but the actual figure was 227 million. Doctors had been writing 5 million prescriptions a month in 1947, and this had risen to 19 million a month by 1951. Critics complained about long queues of people waiting to see a dentist and about the five-month wait for glasses. They said that it showed that people were taking advantage of everything they could get for free. It was, however more a reflection of just how medically neglected Britain had been before 1948. The number of patients on doctors' registers rose to 30 million. The poorest people now rushed to receive treatments for conditions, hernias, cancers, 
toothache and ulcers with which they had been living for years. The NHS quickly became a source of national pride. Some 95% of people and 88% of doctors signed up straight away. A survey in 1956 found that 90% of the population thought the NHS was a good service, with 7% undecided and only 3% against it. In 1958, celebrating the NHS's 10th anniversary, the Times newspaper said, the nation has good reason to be proud of the health service. To help reduce cost, Labour introduced a one shilling, five pence, prescription charge in 1951 and asked people to pay half of the cost of spectacles and false teeth. Although pensioners, the poor and disabled people, did not have to pay. It caused a rift in the Labour government as Anoran Bevan, the Minister for Health, resigned in protest. He believed that the NHS would be free to anyone. In 1954, the Conservatives increased prescription charges to two shillings, ten pence. The economy, debt, aid and devalued currency. There was an enormous economic cost to pay for winning the war. Britain had lost 30% of its wealth as a result of fighting the Second World War. The national debt had risen from 500 million in 1939 to 3,500 million in 1945. The highest rate of income tax was increased to 50% and many government assets were sold off to try to help pay off some of this debt. War damage or involvement in the war effort meant that few industries had the means or materials to produce goods for export in 1945. The USA had also stopped the Lend-Lease scheme as soon as the war was over in 1945. This meant that Britain now had to find pay for all of its own materials instead of being given them by the USA. A total of $3,000 million of US aid was also paid to the UK government in 1948 as part of the Marshall Plan. There was a continuing dependence on support from the USA to help pay off war debt. The consequence of all this was increased austerity measures. Further rationing and other restrictions, such as limits on how much British economy I beg your pardon, British currency, could be taken abroad. Ministers hoped this would divert what resources there were to where they were needed and to reduce British dependence on imports. After a difficult winter in 1946-47, there were even more severe restrictions and shortages. The pound sterling was also reduced in value compared to the dollar. In 1949, dropping from $4.03 to the pound to $2.8 to the pound. It seemed a humiliating defeat at the time, but it improved Britain's exports by making British goods cheaper abroad. Nationalisation of industry by 1951. The nationalisation of key industries was a major policy of the Labour government that came to power in 1945. In a speech to Parliament in 1945, the Government Minister, Herbert Morrison, explained this as to bring essential services under public ownership. There are two extreme policies that governments can have towards industry. 
state-controlled, where the state completely controls industry, as it did in the USSR, or free market, where industry is left entirely alone by the government, as it was in the USA. The post-war Labour government, however, wanted to create a mixed economy. This meant that some industries were brought under government control and others were left free of government interference. Public ownership of the industries was not a new idea in the UK. Even before the war, the government controlled the BBC, London Passenger Transport and the Central Electricity Board. Governments interfering Interference in industry had already increased before 1945 to enable the country to fight the war more effectively. Labour had campaigned in the 1945 election to nationalise those key industries that they thought were inefficient and therefore failing to serve the nation. Labour said that nationalisation would lead to more coordination between key industries. This would enable the government to have integrated energy and transport policies. Many people believe that nationalisation would lead to full employment and a prosperous economy, and ultimately to lower prices. The programme of nationalisation was intended to give improved status and conditions for the workers and compensation to the existing owners. A total of £2,700 million was paid out in compensation. Industries that were nationalised by 1951 The Bank of England, 1946. This was done to spread government influence throughout all banks, but without having to control them directly. It meant that the government would be able to get money for investment. Cable and Wireless, 1947. The government brought out the shares of the company. The government bought out the shares of the company that provided telecommunications across the Commonwealth. Many homes did not have their own telephones. The government now controlled all international radio and telegraph services. Co, 1947. Even the Conservatives admitted this was necessary to help a struggling industry. They created the National Co Board, but were worried that such a large industry of nearly 2,000 mines would not be easy to control centrally. Miners were very optimistic about how this would improve their lives, but they soon realised that little was likely to change, as the nationalised coal industry was run by the same managers as before. Miners did quickly see improvements in their working conditions, although not in their pay. Electricity, 1947, and gas, 1948. The Central Electricity Board, already owned by the pylons and power lines for the government, 500 electricity companies now became 14 area electricity boards, despite a lot of opposition to this in Parliament. It was hoped that this development would lead to standardising voltages and prices, and that the quarter of British homes with no electricity supply would be connected. Over 1,000 gas companies became 12 area gas boards, And again, priority was given to connecting up remote communities. The government was now able to organise gas and electricity supplies into an efficient national system. Civil Aviation, 1946. The British Overseas Airways Corporation, BOAC, already existed. British European Airways, BEA, 
and British South American Airways, BSAA, were created. It was not controversial, as most MPs agreed that competition for passengers and routes would waste precious resources. It also allowed the government to give direct support to post-war expansion. Transport, 1948. This was to be controlled by the British Transport Commission. British Rail was created to take control of 52,000 miles of track with its aim to modernise the railways and make them profitable again. Long-distance lorry drivers came under British road services. Bus services were not under the Commission's control as a result of the Conservative opposition. The aim was to provide a coordinated transport policy that would serve everyone in the UK, even those living in remote areas. Iron and Steel, passed 1947, did not take effect until 1951. Labour wanted to control these industries because they were so important to the economy. The Conservatives strongly objected to this, as these industries were already efficient and should be left to the businessmen who already knew how to run them well. The Conservatives used their influence in the House of Lords to block iron and steel nationalisation, which in turn meant that Labour had to pass the 1949 Parliament Act to reduce the power of the House of Lords. This was finally put into effect in 1951, but both iron and steel were privatised again in 1953 by Churchill's Conservative government. By 1951, Labour's nationalisation programme was complete, and one in ten people now worked for a newly nationalised industry. Coal output immediately increased, and cable and wireless made very healthy profits. State control meant the electrification of the countryside, which private companies had considered not worth the expense. The government was able to keep prices down in these industries, and improvements were made in working conditions and safety standards. However, increasing taxation and rationing, along with the devalued pound, dented the popularity of the Labour government and would ultimately contribute to the Conservatives winning the 1951 election.